do in your daily lives. Well, tonight we are going to continue in our teaching series on the doctrine of God. And in particular tonight, we're going to focus on what are known as God's incommunicable attributes, meaning, and we do have a public health nurse and some other medical people here, these are attributes of God that he does not share with us. Um, He is God and we are not. So let's start in prayer. Oh, Lord, how vast and incomprehensible are your ways and your knowledge, presence, and power. You and you alone are truly sovereign, all-knowing, and everywhere present. And for that, we are grateful and submit to your lordship and your direction over our lives. Illumine our hearts and minds, Lord, as we scratch the surface of understanding these things that indeed are too wonderful for us. Let our hearts burn with passion as we read and study your word together and seek to glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you will open your Bibles to the 139th Psalm or your electronic Bible, your Bible app, We are going to look at the first 18 verses. And you'll notice that I included that in the call to worship. And you're going to hear much of the uh, opening uh, verses of the 139th uh, Psalm over and over again. Because I want them to to get into our minds. Um, And we're going to talk tonight, as Pastor John just mentioned, about God being uh, all-knowing, everywhere present. And all powerful. So listen for those themes as we read together through, as I say, the first uh, 18 verses. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit up and when I rise up. Already become very clear. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high and I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're already there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. 
How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Well, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord does, will, and always will stand forever. So when we speak of the doctrine of God, we're speaking about characteristics and attributes that are part of our understanding of who God is and maybe even more important, who God isn't. Because the culture tells us many lies about who God is and who God isn't. And there are many attributes uh, of God. We're, we're looking at them in this evening uh, set of services. God's eternity, his unchangeableness, also called his immutability, his independence, also called his... Pete Lilbeck, Pete Lilbeck preached on it as a saity. All right. And his unity, also called simplicity, which is maybe a little bit of a confusing word. This is to distinguish his other attributes, often called communicable attributes, those that he does communicate with us, such as his love, mercy, justice. We, we have some of those attributes, not in full like he does. But tonight we're going to focus on the omnis of God. Omni is just a Latin prefix that simply means all. So these are incommunicable attributes of God. Again, attributes we neither share with God nor ones we can even fully understand. And tonight we're going to examine the three primary omnis, that of omniscience, omnipresence, and omnipotence. Some would say there's at least a fourth, and that's omnibenevolence, but uh, we're going to leave that one to the side. And we see in all three in full display here in the 139th Psalm, and David is meditating aloud on the greatness of God and of these attributes. So we're going to take the first one, omniscience. It's spelled omniscience. And the reason for that is science is Latin for scientia, which means to know. So all-knowing. The idea is that God fully knows himself and all things, whether actual things or possible things, in a single eternal act. The implication of this is that God is fully and completely aware of everything, everywhere, all at once. Now, I know that's the similar to the title of a popular movie, but I thought I would co-opt it for scriptural uh, purposes, because it's, it's a great uh, little phrase that you can remember. His knowledge never changes like ours does. His knowledge never grows like ours does. He's infinite, and he infinitely knows everything about his infinite self. So simply put, God knows all things and is absolutely perfect in that knowledge. Nothing will be discovered that God doesn't already know and, in fact, decreed. We see this in the very first verses of David's psalm in, in, uh, psalm in verses 2 through 4. You know when I sit up and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You already know it and you know it in full. 
And when you consider those, this is where these theologians have begun to understand something about the doctrine of God. His knowledge, his omniscience is full, complete, and unchanging. In verse 4, David declares, knowing what word is on our tongue, even before we speak it. In verse 6, David says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high and I cannot attain it. Can you imagine knowing everything all at once in a single eternal act? And there's nothing that you learn after that. That's a God. (laughs) That's truly God. John tells us in 1 John 3.20, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Proverbs 15.3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch upon the evil and the good. Isaiah declares this same truth. He says, I am God and there is none, it's God talking, not Isaiah, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet even done. And later in Isaiah 55, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. You know what? I just got to tell you when you when you preach and you look out on the congregation and you've started down a verse and you look at people and they're mouthing the verse. That is wonderful. And indeed, God's knowledge is indeed infinite and boundless. Now, this shouldn't surprise us. After all, everything that is created was created by him. So, of course, he knows everything about everything. God even knew everything about David before he was born. Listen again to some of these verses. 13, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. In other words, there was no way for any human to know what was happening. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, even when as yet there was none of them. Now, that's true knowledge. Look again at verse 16. David acknowledges that in God's book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. That's true omniscience. By the way, that's true for every one of us. There is nothing that can happen to you or that will happen to you without God's knowledge and without his having ordained it. You can rest assured in that. That is a great anxiety reliever. And I want you to see that as, as an encouragement. Everything that happens, God has ordained. And therefore, it's right. Now, on this human side, that is hard to understand. I struggle with that every time I walk into the examination room with a patient. That's not particularly what they want to hear at that time. Because we don't have omniscience. We can't see ahead and understand Romans 8.28. How is God actually going to use and tie all this together for my good? But the promise is there as a believer. You are the inheritor of this promise. And it is an ironclad promise. 
There are no accidents. God knows not only what is, but what is possible. In turn, this means that of the tens of thousands upon thousands of possible circumstances or scenarios of what could have been, God selected one. One and one only. Because he holistically knows what would have happened in any of the other scenarios. And again, I think we can trust that God, who knows everything about everything, all at once. Now, I know as soon as I say something like that, that some might raise objections. Does this mean that we have no real freedom of choice? And that seems to be particularly important for us as Americans. If God knows and foreordains everything, are we in fact free? Or are we some sort of robot actor on a stage? Well, fortunately, and I wouldn't have asked the question if if not, Scripture answers that for us. Listen to Paul in his letter to the Ephesians, uh, chapter 1, verse 11. God accomplishes all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, we don't directly experience that, do we? It is, so to speak, hidden from our eyes. But Scripture tells us it's so, even though we don't perceive it. Remember Solomon's understanding. The lot is cast into the lap, but the decision is wholly from the Lord. Literally, in a a game where there are lots, the Lord already knows the outcome. The Lord has already ordained that outcome. So how do we reconcile this contrast? Free will or foreordained? Foreordained or free will? And the answer is yes to both. One way to reconcile this is through what is called concurrence. The idea that God works, as theologian Wayne Grudem would have it, with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. I'm going to say that a couple of different ways. Because if you're like me, there's sometimes some ways that somebody says something and I get it. And other times they say it in a different way. I I struggle with it and don't get it. The idea is that God directs and works through what are called the distinctive properties of created things such that they bring about the results that we see. But the events we see are caused fully and completely by God, while at the same time caused by the creature himself. Are you starting to smoke in your, in your brain? This, this divine cause is often seen as the primary cause, and the human cause seen as the secondary cause. The latter is the only thing we see in experience, right? That's the only thing we see directly. And, but ultimately, God causes all things that happen. But he does so in a manner whereby he upholds our ability to make real choices that have real consequences, and for which we are truly held accountable. But beware, a dangerous error here. God is never the author of evil. Perhaps a good way in which to illustrate all these moving, somewhat confusing parts is the crucifixion of Christ. Peter says this during his sermon at Pentecost. 
This Jesus, now listen for for how things happen. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Did you hear those moving parts? Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge, i.e. foreordained by God, was nevertheless crucified and killed at the hands of lawless men. On the one hand, God's plan and foreknowledge are clearly in view. God had ordained that his son Jesus would be delivered into the hands of lawless men according to his plan. On the other hand, lawless men made willing choices, acted upon them, and are and will be accountable for their actions and choices. The point is that God brought his plan to be through their willing choices. God doesn't force us to do anything. John Calvin put it this way. Thieves and murderers and other evildoers are the instruments of divine providence. And the Lord himself uses these to carry out the judgments that he has determined with himself. Calvin went on to say, yet I deny that they can derive from this any excuse for their evil deeds. Why will they either involve God in the same iniquity with themselves or will they cloak their own depravity with his justice? They can do neither. The second attribute we're going to look at is uh, omnipresence. This means that God is unlimited in regard to time and space. He is everywhere, always. And yet, he can act differently in different places. No surprise in many ways. Genesis 1.1, right? The opening salvo of scripture tells us that God created all space And everything that's in it. In fact, the only thing not created is what? God. I don't know. I don't know why I never really thought of that until I was preparing this message. But I thought, is there anything that hasn't been created at the hands of God? Well, of course, God himself. Moses reminds us of this in Deuteronomy 10, 14. He says, behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, and the earth, and all that is in it. In other words, everything, everywhere, all the time, all at once. Herman Boving said it this way, He is not spread throughout space like light and air, things that we might look at for analogies, but is present with his whole being in all places, whole and entire, in every place but confined to none. Reform Dogmatics, Volume 2, to the pastors. Gregory the Great put it this way. He is present in all things. By his being, presence, and power, God is eternally, presently, and powerfully present here and everywhere. David expresses this again so beautifully in verses 7 through 11 in the 139th Psalm. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I free from flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're already there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, your hand is there to lead me and your right hand shall hold me. 
David expresses the biblical truth that there is nowhere, anywhere, at any time, where God isn't truly, fully, and wholly present. Solomon, too, expresses his understanding of this in 1 Kings 8.27, when he exclaims, But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house which I build. Think of it. What an encouragement this is. We can pray and talk to God anywhere, anytime. David says, in your presence there is fullness of joy. In your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And believers can never be separated from that joy. Never, ever. In fact, this is not part of what I prepared, but some of you may have read um, the Jewish psychiatrist's work, Viktor Frankl, uh, when he wrote uh, after he survived the Nazi death camps. And he wrote about his observation as a psychiatrist of why did people survive? Do you know who tended to survive? Believers. People who had a belief outside of themselves and that gave them the one thing we must have as humans to survive. You just mouthed it. Hope. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.17 where the Spirit of the Lord is which is everywhere there is freedom. And it means that God is not part of creation. Nothing Therefore, can ever change or remove or harm him. He has always been and will always be. No one or nothing else is like that in anything of our experience. And that should give us true freedom. I'm also encouraged that those who seek to do wrong cannot flee or hide from God's presence. I don't know if it's just me. Uh, or maybe it's just men, or maybe it's all people. Justice. Revenge. <laughs> people who do bad. Amos makes this clear in the frightening, if you do bad, but encouraging for the rest of us passage in Amos 9, 1 through 4. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. They could dig into the deepest, darkest parts of Sheol. From there, my hand will take them. Though they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. Though they hide themselves on Mount Carmel, I will search out and I will take them. It's a promise that the wicked are seen and that all wrongs will be righted by the God who sees. There's a freedom in that for those who are his. Our last omni is that of um, uh, omniscience. This, uh, this simply means that God is able to do his holy will. He can bring to pass everything that he wills without bounds, without limitations. And it means absolute power and sovereignty. David expresses this in verse 5. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Job saw this firsthand, and he declares in Job 42, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can ever be thwarted. Furthermore, God's holy will is decreed and carried out not just among humans, but among the angels too. 
Did you realize that? Listen to Daniel 4.35. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what, what are you doing? Jeremiah says to God, nothing is too hard for you. The angel Gabriel says to Mary, with God, nothing will be impossible. Jesus himself says, with God, all things are possible. In Luke 12, we read, why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered and known by God. I know what you're thinking. <laughs> but consider Romans 8:29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Wow. When you hear the word foreknew or foreknowledge, it simply means that God knows with absolute certainty exactly how his plan will unfold. We are uh, making our way as we talk about the pillars of Reformed faith in the adult Sunday school. Uh, we're, we're touching on with each one of those pillars what are called the subordinate standards, particularly the Westminster Confession of Faith. Chapter 3, section 2 says this, Although God knows whatsoever may or or can come to pass upon all supposed conditions, yet hath he not decreed anything because he foresaw it in the future. In other words, and I'm mentioning this because sometimes people are confused about this, including about who is saved and who is not or will be saved. God doesn't decide what to do based on looking into the future, seeing what might happen or will happen, and then design his plan around that. So he did not look into the future and say, you know, this Greg and Gene Poland, I think they're going to respond and be believers, so I'm going to elect them. I'm going to choose them. That's not what happens. The creator is never the slave of the created. It's the other way around. The Bible says this in Proverbs 21.1, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. So again, we have to confront the charge that this attribute means that we're not free. On the one hand, if God is truly all-powerful, then it's clear that human decision cannot displace or in any way frustrate God's will. On the other hand, if we are indeed free in our desires, but God controls everything that happens, he causes events in our day-to-day lives and our desires to freely desire what he desires. That is among the attributes that sets you apart. Bob Burridge of the Geneva Institute for Reform Studies kind of summarized it, putting it this way. God orchestrates all circumstances and infallibly influences how each person perceives, understands, and responds to them. No one is ever forced to do something he doesn't freely choose to do. God never makes someone choose sin when he doesn't truly desire to commit that sin. The unredeemed soul isn't on its own in its fallen nature 
ever able to sincerely and knowingly choose to do what God has commanded and to do it for the right reason, which is for the glory of the Lord. People are never compelled to come repentantly to Christ by faith against their will. Kicking and screaming sometimes, okay? They come most freely as God transforms their soul and puts the desire and true faith in their hearts by saving grace. It would not have been true one year of college. But as Jean and I drove up tonight, and if any of you came, not, not this way, I'm terrible with directions, but the other way, there were lights flashing and loud music that might have attracted me during one year of college. I, I feel a certain kind of pity. There's a sense in which they're worshiping at the wrong altar. And I, and I feel some pity for that. So God's omnipotence reveals God's absolute sovereignty to do according to his will. But given our experience of human history, and I've heard people articulate it, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to confront it head on, that might frighten us, given our experiences with anyone who has absolute power. Our fear is that they can, and historically do, use power arbitrarily to do harm, to do evil. And some, for the wrong reasons, fear God because of this. What if God does this to me? We had an amusing story. Um, uh, soon after we moved to Rochester, Minnesota, we had a, a, and now I laugh about it because God already knew, and I'm laughing along with this guy because I'm thinking, well, this doesn't pertain to me. This is a young, successful architect in Minneapolis who is going full guns, get, getting great commissions. And he began to perceive a call to ministry. And he said, okay, Lord, okay, but, but please, nowhere that's barren and isolated. Do you know where he got called? Siberia. I am not kidding. He got called to Siberia. I got called to Eden down here. <laughs> But this is not what is meant in terms of this attribute of God. Notice how it's worded. He is able to do all his holy will. Now, please listen carefully to this, because this is your answer to people who express, or when you probe and you're talking with them, you begin to understand that their understanding is that God might deliberately harm them. Or do something that is not for their good. Or that something arbitrary is going to happen. He is able to do all his holy will. This means that it excludes things that would be outside his holy will. Or inconsistent with his character. God will not lie. Everything you read in scripture is true. We connected the dots in adult Sunday school this morning across the covenants. And I think it was like, wow, for many people to see the unfolding of redemptive history, that everything God said would happen in the very earliest chapters of Scripture came to be millennia later 
We can depend on that. He won't fail to keep his promises to us. God cannot be tempted to do evil or to perform evil. God cannot sin or for that matter, act in any way outside of any of his attributes, unlike all of us. His power and his sovereignty is is infinite. It's unlimited. But his use of that power always occurs within the attributes that you've heard and will hear through this season's evening services. So he is never arbitrary. He's never mistaken. He's never wrong in the use of his power. And this is enormously good news. I mean, I'm holding on so I don't jump (laughs) in terms of excitement here. We have a a creator, redeemer God whose attributes are unlimited and yet used only for our good. And never ever for evil or for wrong outcomes or in unjust ways. We have no experience like that in our humanness. And so we're tempted to doubt. Now, again, don't walk out of here thinking, well, gee, does doubt mean that I'm not saved? No, it does not mean that. All of us harbor doubts. And there are times, I mentioned this morning, that Catholic theologians in particular used to talk about the dark night where we wrestle with those doubts. But think of it. If God truly and comprehensively knows all that will happen and is supremely powerful, then God has a plan. And that plan is a good plan. And it's good for every one of us. I don't always understand it. I don't know why do I have sciatica? Why am I developing all the kind of slow, degenerative you know, aspects of the aging that we all do? I have a hard time sometimes When people walk into my examination room with just things that that, that we were talking about Jeremiah being the weeping prophet. I'm the weeping physician at Mayo. These patients come in with, I mean, the fear in their eyes. And I'm just, my empathy and compassion for them is so large that you can't help but, but weep. I wrote, published an article about this once. And I said, as a physician, I think... Most of the time, the most important thing that I have ever done is to weep with a patient and hand them a Kleenex. Well, we don't clearly see God's plans in our day-to-day lives, but we can take comfort that an all-knowing, all-powerful, sovereign God has a perfect plan that will be executed perfectly. Nothing will frustrate it. We're told this in Deuteronomy 29.29. The secret things, this is why we don't understand all of it. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. That we may do all the words of this law. They are secret things. They are God's plan. We may not see them. But they will occur. And they will occur for our children and our children after that. So how do we kind of wrap up these attributes and apply them to our daily lives and thinking? I've I've got several thoughts here, three of them, and John Calvin had only one. First, that's almost blasphemous, actually. I am reminded of how universally 
Infants and small children think of their fathers in particular. I mentioned this this morning as being omni, as being like Superman. I did with my dad. And this leads to great confidence in children and a complete lack of anxiety or concern about their futures, of course, until reality sets in and you realize, you know, dad had his foibles and passed them on to me and I passed them on to my son. But this is why we read, for example, in Luke 18, verse 17. Truly, I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a what? A little child will never enter it. The point is, and we're told this explicitly in Scripture, we are to have an utter childlike faith in the good of the Father. But if you maybe didn't have a great father, just remember God is not like our human fathers. He really is omni in all respects and never fails. We can have unbounded confidence in a God whose attributes are as these. There is no other God to which we can say that. The second, we know that the decrees of God are the eternal plans of God, whereby before the creation of the world, he determined to bring about everything that happens. And this, brothers and sisters, makes you realize there is no possible way that believers will ever be isolated from God or forgotten about by God or where events overwhelm us outside of his control. And for that, we can say, Amen. The third, what we see in these incommunicable attributes of God, when fully and rightly understood, cause us to have a comprehensive trust in God across and through and within all circumstances with a confidence and at least less fearfulness and anxiety about the, about the future, convinced that God will, as Paul explained to the Romans, cause all things to work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. We're going to really tear that verse apart uh, in, what, I think two Sunday mornings from now when I'm preaching. And then John Calvin's. Gratitude of mind for the favorable outcome of things, patience in adversity, and also, you ready for this, incredible freedom from worry about the future all necessarily flow upon this knowledge that we've just talked about. Ignorance of providence, he said, is the ultimate of all miseries, the highest blessedness lies in the knowledge of it. Pack that away in your heart and your mind because we all face dark nights. This should, I think, lead us to doxology, to an audible thank you, Lord, that you should attend to someone like me, like this. Ultimately, I think we conclude, as Paul did in Romans 11, oh, the depth of the riches and of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has ever been his counselor? And so we leave this brief study of the armies of God, assured of his absolute power, 
knowledge, and presence. His infallibility and his eternal promises with doxology. For truly we serve a God that, as John Calvin so wonderfully put it, provides us with incredible freedom from worry about the future as all necessarily follow upon his knowledge. May we glorify God in our understanding, our desires, our prayers, our beliefs, and our actions. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful to read and study your wonderful attributes, facts about you that are so beyond our human experience that we delight in them. Thank you for the freedom from anxiety we have for the future. For you ordain all things for our good and will never fail or falter. Thank you that there is nowhere, Lord, in the heavens and the earth where you are not. Hear our prayers, Lord, of thankfulness. In Jesus' name, amen. So then, it's good to be king. And so we worship our king as we stand and sing together majesty to close our time. Please stand.